0: If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Mark chapter four. If you've not got a Bible, I'd encourage you to go and get one. Um, we're going to be looking at really the first four chapters of Mark's Gospel, and then particularly the account of the calming of the storm, verse thirty five to forty one. The title of my message this morning is, is a question Who is this man? And I've taken that title from chapter four, verse 41. That's the questions that the disciples are left with after they see this miracle that Jesus performs in front of them, calming the storm. Who is this man? And the reason I've chosen that as my title is because that question is central to understanding Christianity. It's notable, for example, that the books in the New Testament, which we call the Gospels, the record of the good news, is not... Romans, with its very orderly, uh, structured, uh, reasoned arguments about, about what we ought to believe and, and and how we are saved. It's not 1 Corinthians with lots of uh, instructions about moral living. The Gospels are those accounts of the birth, life, death and resurrection of the man Jesus. The Gospel is about a person, Jesus And so unless you understand who Jesus is, you've not really got hold of Christianity. There is no Christianity without the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this man is a hugely important question. And I think the reason Mark includes this question from the lips of the disciples at the end of this little account is not just to record the question that was on their lips. But I think it's rhetorical. I think he's wanting you to answer who do you say this man is? Who do you think Jesus is? and so that 's what we 're going to try and consider this morning. Now for those who are familiar with this, this account and there will be many familiar with this account, even our very young children they can 't even speak yet and though they will know this story of Jesus calming the storm. It's one of the uh, first miracles that you tell young children about. Perhaps they're even learning about it out there in their class this morning. And for many, you'll be familiar with the fact that Jesus was on the boat and the the waves came in and it it was all looking uh, dreadful. And the disciples appealed to him. There's Jesus lying down, sleeping with his head on the cushion at the back of the boat. And he stands up and calms the storm with a word. And perhaps for you who know the story already, you've already got a preconceived idea of, uh, what this miracle is telling us about Jesus. Uh, but I don't want to jump the gun and get to there straight away. We, we will come to what we understand about this. But first, let's, let's track through Mark's gospel and think about if we were reading Mark's gospel for the first time, what would Mark be expecting us to understand at this point in his account? Who is this man? What would a first reader understand if this was all they had to go on? And I'd say perhaps they'd think that Jesus is... A prophet with authority. That's one of the things that's come across clearly in the first few chapters. If you look at chapter one, verse one, Mark has made it clear that, look, this account that he's given us is all about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then Mark introduces the prophet John. But on John's lips, you're told verse seven. This is his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and tie. The gospel is going to be about Jesus. John's telling us it's going to be about someone more powerful than him, the prophet. And then chapters one to four are really all about the authority that is present in Jesus' ministry. Chapter one, verse 22, for example, the people were amazed at his teaching because not because it was new or different, but because he taught them as one who had Authority, not as the teacher of the law. What is that authority? Well, the authority is then seen in two distinct ways. One is the authority in his teaching, the way he's able to interpret scripture. And the other part of the authority is the way he's able to put that authority into practice in his miracles. And his healing. And so, for example, verse 27, if you're still with me in chapter one, uh, the people were amazed and new teaching. And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. His authority is not just about interpreting God's law. His authority extends to the demons and the evil spirits. That uh, pattern continues throughout the first few chapters. You could look, for example, at chapter two. You've got the paralyzed man who's lowered down through the roof and Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins. He proves that he vindicates that authority by healing the man and, and giving him his legs back, as it were. And then uh, at the end of chapter two into chapter three, you've got this contest between Jesus and the other teachers of the law about how to interpret the Sabbath. And again, Jesus' authority to interpret the Sabbath is proven by his healing of the man with the withered hand. The authority of Jesus has been pushed to the forefront. And then in chapter four, Mark builds on that authority by giving us these parables that Jesus teaches, stressing the importance of how we respond to the word of Jesus. It's not just right for us to listen and, and think or ponder the words of Jesus. But we need to respond. And famous for that, the good soil. We, we need to be those whose, whose words, uh, where the words of Jesus take root in our hearts and, and blossom up to bear fruit. But there's a question implied with this uh, fact of authority. The question is, whose authority does Jesus have? Where has he got this authority from? If you think of today's society, there are, there are all sorts of different people with authority. You could think of a police officer; they have authority. But traffic wardens also have authority. Estate agents—they have a kind of authority, don't they? Or drug dealers—they have authority over the people that they're dealing with. There's all sorts of different types of authority, and for some, that authority is inherent in their role or who they are. And for, for for others, their authority is delegated. What is the authority that Jesus has? Is it his, or has he just been passed it on? Is he really just? A prophet with authority? Is he just a messenger with an important message? Or is his authority something deeper than that? Well, Jesus is very clear that his authority is his own. Mark wants to make it clear that Jesus knows that his authority is his own. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 11, at the baptism of Jesus... Matt describes how the heavens opened and the voice of the father vindicates the son. This is my be- This you are my son, whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Speaks that voice. When the demons are driven out by the authority of Jesus, they scream out the words. This is the son of God. You see that three times at least. Uh, chapter one, verse 24. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know you are the Holy One of God. You see it again in chapter 3, verse 11. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And in chapter 5, verse 7, which we read this morning, uh, when when, when the man with the legions meets Jesus, he says, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The spirit world knows that Jesus has authority. They know that he is the one with authority. And I think that's why Jesus uses this title Son of Man in part to express that he's not just a messenger from God, but he is God incarnate. But not everybody sees Jesus in this way. Some of the characters that Mark has introduced us to in the Gospel believe that Jesus' authority is not his own, but it's delegated. He must have some authority, otherwise he wouldn't be able to drive out the demons. But the Pharisees say, look, the only only way It can be driving out those demons is if he's been given authority by someone higher than them. And we propose that the one who's given the authority is the prince of the demon. And so chapter three, verse 22, the teacher of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebub. It's by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. His authority isn't his own. He's been handed it by someone else more powerful. Jesus refutes their argument with logic, saying, look, if. If Satan is dismantling his own household, how long will he last? I'm not empowered by Satan. But some others might take a similar line and say, well, we still consider Jesus' authority to be given him, delegated, passed on to him, but by the Father this time, by God himself. As though you were kind of an ambassador of God or, or some sort of chief messenger. After all, isn't this the pattern of the way prophets have worked in the past? You think about Moses, for example. You think about Elijah and Elisha. Great men of God who were able to perform miraculous signs, but only because they'd been given that authority by God. They weren't in themselves anything special or different to the people around them. They were just handed an authority and an ability to heal and work miracles. And as you go through Mark's gospel, by chapter 8, Jesus will ask, who do people say I am? And Peter says, well, people think you're a prophet, basically. Yes, a prophet with authority. They think God has sent you to, to, to speak this message, to do these works. And that this last view that Jesus is basically one sent by God, not God himself, but sent by God. Yes, an important person, but his importance only really lies in the message that he brings. It's a hugely popular view of Jesus even today. You think classically of of Muslims, for example, who are more than happy to talk about Jesus as a prophet of God, but will not bow the knee to him. You think of Christian cults or sects, people like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, who see Jesus as a created being sent by God to, to, to bring a message into the world and to draw people back to the Father. But nothing more than a man himself, really, or nothing much more, at least. But also those who've grown up within the Christian tradition or grown up within Britain, exposed to Christianity, let's say. People who have come across things like Easter and Christmas who are more than happy to think of Jesus as someone perhaps relevant at times, but only relevant for the message he brings. He's a good teacher, they might say. Yes, he's here to teach us how to love others. He, he taught us to, to value others alongside ourselves, not to think too highly of ourselves. They, many people consider Jesus to be more concerned about improving our behavior rather than putting our faith in him. And Jesus himself, well, it's say uh, there's no lasting relevance to Jesus, not at least beyond the words of his that are recorded for us. So as long as I've got his teaching, I'm OK. But Jesus himself, we can do away with. And perhaps that view even creeps into our own lives as real, genuine Christians. Those times when, for example, Jesus becomes not the person that we love and seek to serve, but simply a mechanism by which we are saved, spared from judgment, or the the means by which we get our prayers heard and answered. We don't love Jesus for who he is. We're just thankful that Jesus brings us a message to us. And I think what Mark is doing in chapter four and five is he's going to recount four miracles that show us that Jesus is far more than just a prophet. And if we're taking this account seriously, we will not be able to finish the account and say, oh, yes, Jesus was just a good teacher, a prophet with authority. If we take Mark's words seriously, we've got to see that Jesus is something more. And so what Mark does, he introduces chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, the first of these four miracles that show us the miraculous power that Jesus had was not the result of a delegated authority. His miraculous power was because he himself was someone utterly unique, someone utterly different to anyone else who had ever walked the face of this earth. Mark's going to show us that Jesus is the son of the most high God. Now, there's nothing new in uh, in this idea. It has been present in Mark's gospel so far. As I said earlier, it was announced by the voice of the Father at the baptism. It's been stated by the evil spirits. But now this new type of miracle is showing us Jesus really is something special. I wonder how do you think the the miracle of the calming of the storm is different to the miracle of healing the paralyzed man or driving out demons, for example? What is it at a fundamental level that makes this miracle so much more unique and so much more powerful? Well, consider this. Today, we see ailments and illnesses and things like paralysis as being really the indiscriminate effects of living in a a broken and fallen world. It could happen to anybody. But in the time of Jesus, that's definitely not the way people saw illness. They saw illness and disease and such things as judgment from God. And so if you get a prophet from God, it's more than natural to expect that, well, if God has sent certain judgments on people, well, a prophet with authority from God ought to be able to uh, take away those judgments and the effects of those judgments. And so healings, well, that's really part and parcel of what it means to be a prophet. Yes, a a powerful and and well-endowed prophet. But the calming of the storm is something different altogether. In the calming of the storm, you've got this really extravagant display of the forces of nature. Verse 37, a furious squall came up or or a great storm came up. The waves broke over the boat. You can imagine the wind and the waves and, uh, and perhaps the rain hammering down. And the situation gets so dire that the boat is nearly swamped. And the, the disciples, many of whom are experienced fishermen, fear for their lives. No doubt they've been doing all they can to, to keep the boat on a straight path and, and get themselves back to land. But the force of nature has just begun to overwhelm them. And so eventually they wake Jesus and they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And significantly, in verse 39, Jesus gets up. And what does he do? He rebukes the wind. And he speaks to the waves. And he says, be quiet and be still. Now, it's significant because Jesus is not here praying. He's not praying that God would calm the storm. He himself gets up and he speaks, not to the disciples, not to his heavenly father. He speaks directly to the wind. Be still. He speaks directly to the waves. Be still. And immediately there is great calm. In Mark's account, he contrasts the great storm with the great calm that follows. It's not easily spotted in our English translations, but it's there in the Greek. This is not a prayer for God to act. This is Jesus acting on his own words. And the effect of what Jesus does is not lost on the disciples. Many hundreds of years ago, a man called Jonah was thrown off a ship in the middle of a great storm. And as the soldiers threw him overboard, God immediately stilled the storm. And at that moment, those soldiers bowed the knee to the one who they knew must have absolute total control over all things. If he could stop the forces of nature so immediately, so fully, he must be the one we also have to bow the knee to. And in the same way, the disciples realize this Jesus is no mere man. He is God himself here with us. Who, who else could he be if he has this power to still the storm in the eleventh century here in the UK or it wasn't the UK then, but King Canute you might have heard of him. King Canute famously uh, went down to the sea, he was the king of England and Denmark and Sweden, sort of the North Sea Empire, and King Canute was fed up with his courtiers uh, flattering him and, and thinking so highly of him and King Canute wanted to show them look. I'm a man with authority. Certainly I'm the king, but I'm just a man. And so he he took his courtiers down to the beach and he, he, he sat on the sand on his throne and he spoke to the sea and he says, stop. And he tried to send the tide backwards. And of course, what would happen? Well, the tide just keeps coming in. And King Canute sat and endured that that awkward silence as the courtiers looked on and wondered what we ought to do now. And he sat and waited while the tide came in and he kept speaking to it. Stop. Go back. In order to show them, he doesn't have control over the the wind and waves. There is only one who has such control, and that one is God himself. The effect of all this that Mark is trying to show us is that he's saying, don't dare relegate Jesus to the position of good teacher. He is far more than that. The disciples saw that. The crowds had opportunity to see that. And what I'm wanting to show you, Mark is saying, is that Jesus is far more than a man, far more than a prophet, even a prophet gifted authority by God. Jesus is the presence of God here on earth with us. He is the son of the most high God. We prayed earlier about how we might follow up on some of those contacts we had from the barbecue. Imagine... The effect of opening the Bible to this passage with your friend or family or neighbour or whoever it was you invited. Now you might say, whoa, whoa, whoa! If I'm going to open the Bible with someone, I'm not certain that I want to open it to such a passage. Aren't we just going to get bogged down in questions about how reliable this account is? And look, how convenient that the only eyewitnesses there were the disciples. And uh, 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 who, how can I really begin defending the miraculous works that Jesus did? Is that the best place to start? But look, let's just. Park those questions to one side for a moment, not because they're irrelevant, but partly because you're not going to be able to answer all those questions just from looking at one isolated passage like this. They're part of a much broader discussion. And equally, if Jesus really is the son of God, it should not be a surprise if we find him doing miraculous things. So if you can park those type of questions to one side and bring your friend to this passage and read what Jesus does with the storm and then ask A simple question like this. What is the Bible trying to tell us about who Jesus is? What are we supposed to understand about Jesus? Now, who, reading this passage, would be able to say that Jesus is a good teacher, a good man? Who would, reading this passage, be able to say that Jesus is just like an ethical reformer? He just wants us to live in a nice way. He just wants us to love other people. That's just really what all this message was about. Could you really maintain that position after having read this passage? Is, this, is that what this part of the Bible is trying to teach us? Be good to others? It isn't at all. What this passage is trying to teach us is that Jesus is someone totally other. And so by bringing your friend to this passage, you're showing them, look, If you're going to take the Bible seriously, you need to realize that Jesus is not just a good teacher that that gives us instructions on how to live well. He's the one that we need to be putting our faith in, to be following. You've not taken the Bible seriously until you begin to take Jesus seriously. And you could go on to ask, well, given what we're shown about Jesus here, how then does the Bible want us to respond What are we supposed to do with that information? All well and good that he's the son of the most high, but so what? How do we react? The key comes in verse 40. Jesus says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Again, I think Mark is including those questions, not just to record what happened in the conversation between Jesus and the disciples, but as a rhetorical device to, to challenge you. Do you still have no faith? Will you not put your faith in him? Faith in what? Or who? What is this faith that we're talking about here? Faith in optimism? Faith that things will all turn out okay in the end? Many people advocate such an approach to life. Just be optimistic. It's never as bad as it seems like it might be. But it doesn't always work. The disciples wouldn't have lived another day. If they hadn't had the intervention from Jesus, it's not faith in optimism or karma or whatever else. Jesus is calling them to faith in him. He's asking them, do you still have no faith in me? Do you really consider me not to care for you? Do you really consider that I would have let you drown in the water? Do you really doubt that I was ever in control of all things? That's the challenge Jesus poses to his disciples, and it's the challenge that Mark then poses to us. And when you open your eyes to hear this challenge, you really get to the heart of Mark's purpose in including this account. Jesus is more than a mere prophet. He is the son of the most high God. And he uses that power to save his people. He's more than a prophet with authority. He's the son of the most high God. And finally, he is the saviour of his people. I think in writing this account, Mark allows the two questions of the disciples to ring out clearest. The first question comes in verse 38. Don't you care? Don't you care if we drown, teacher? I wonder how you responded to that question when we read it. Perhaps if this is your first time reading through Mark's gospel, even you would be able to see that Surely that's the wrong question. Surely we've seen already in Mark's gospel, Jesus's commitment to care for people, his persistence in ministry, his willingness to associate with the weakest. Surely Jesus cares for people. And a better question in that situation ought not to be, does he care or not for his disciples? Surely a better question would have been, is he able to do anything right? Is his care ever really in question? And for those of you who know the end of the story, those of you who've read the fullness of Mark's gospel before and have been taught it growing up. I wouldn't be surprised if that question hit you quite hard. Teacher, don't you care? How could anybody level that challenge at Jesus Christ, knowing the things that he will eventually suffer for the sake of his people? Later on in Mark's gospel, there will come no rebuke from Jesus When this time it's not the waves that are threatening him, but the false accusers at his trial. There will come no rebuke telling them to be still when the soldiers are beating him. There will come no rebuke when he's about to be drowned, swamped, engulfed by the power of death. Jesus brings no rebuke in that moment. He endures those things for the sake of the people that he came to save. He endured death to save his people from the forces that threatened them. Not the wind and the waves, but this time the accusations of Satan, the guilt of our sin and the stormy waters of our own failures. Don't you care? And the second question, verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other. Who is this? Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who else could he be? But God incarnate. God in the flesh here with us. Who else is he? And again, we who know the story are reminded that, yes, he is far more than just a teacher. He's the saviour of his people. He's the object of our faith. And it's interesting that this little account comes at the end of chapter four. Chapter four being full of Jesus' parables. Parables. And perhaps this little account becomes like a a living parable for us to consider. A living parable showing us that the way Jesus uses his power to save his people only comes once we first confess our dependence upon him. You see, while Peter and the other disciples are in the boat with their buckets and their hats and their shoes and their flip-flops trying to bail out the water and the wind and the waves are just coming in, Jesus is sleeping with his head on the cushion I like to think perhaps he had one eye open, smiling to himself, knowing what was about to come next. I'll let them struggle for a while, not as punishment, but to drive them to desperation, to drive them to the point where they realize there is no help from themselves. There is no way that they are going to defeat this storm. The only way they're going to get out of it is if they trust me and ask me for help. And in a similar way, there are many of us who are trying to dig ourselves out. Of the mess that we've made of our lives. Who are trying to prove ourselves, vindicate ourselves with, with right living and good words and honourable thoughts. In order to undo the, 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 the harm and the hurt and the rejection of God that we have lived with as a pattern of life. And sometimes Jesus allows us to go on in that in that panic. Bailing out the water as fast as we can, watching the waves bring more water in. Until the point where we finally say, Jesus, I need you to do it for me. I can't do it on my own. Jesus, will you save me? And so it teaches us then that faith in Jesus, we're not just talking about some cute little habit of of going up to church and being part of the social network that goes on here. Inspirational Bible verses pinned on your walls or on the, the background screen of your smartphone. Faith in Jesus is Trembling dependence upon him. Realising that you have nothing to give and it all depends upon his work on your behalf. Faith in Jesus is putting your life in his hands and saying, Jesus, I'm yours. Save me. Rescue me. I wonder what would change if we really got hold of these truths that Mark is showing us in the gospel. A few suggestions. One, I think... Well, do you think we'd ever doubt the goodness of God towards us? Do you think we'd ever go through those stormy moments of life and think, "Ah, God's really lost control at this point. Couldn't he have even earlier to stop this from happening? Couldn't we have avoided this mess? Has God abandoned me? If we really grasp these truths about who Jesus is, surely we would see he's never out of control. But at times he lets the storm rage, not to leave us at its mercy, but only so we can show his power in it. I think, secondly, if we got really got hold of these truths that Mike is showing us, I wonder if we'd ever worry about introducing our friends to Jesus. Do you think we'd ever fear losing our friends and neighbors and and damaging the relationship we have with them? for fear of uh, introducing them to Jesus do you think we'd value their relationship more highly than the relationship we have with our savior do you think we'd ever worry that people might find Jesus unattractive or irrelevant if we really grasped the truth of who he is and third application do you think we'd ever fall into the trap of making our behavior the defining characteristic of our Christianity? Do you think we'd ever fall into that trap of being like Peter? I am implying what might have gone on, you know, bailing the water out of the boat. Here's me and and all my goodness. Here's my good thoughts. Here's service in the church. Here's my Bible knowledge and my Bible reading. Here's my obedient children who I've raised. Would you ever fall into the trap of trying to prove yourself to God based on what we've done? Or would you realize that the the answer to the situation is not trying to save yourself, but by putting your trust in Christ. He is the only one who can save us from our sin and from every moment of stormy waters that we might face. Who is this man? He's the son of the most high God. He is the savior of people. And we live to worship and praise him. We're going to close our service with a hymn of praise to the same Lord Jesus, uh, recognising that not only we are the ones who uh, bow the knee to him, but one day every knee on earth will bow the knee and praise him for who he is. We're going to remain seated and sing at the name of Jesus. Every knee will